Christian ministers and just Christian people should be out there blaspheming the gods of this age in bold terms. And that will get you canceled, that will get people upset, but that's what we have to do. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church in Hilton Head, South Carolina. How are you guys today? Excellent. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. Hope you all had a Merry Christmas. Matt, I saw on Twitter you said you had about 60% attendance Christmas Sunday. We actually maybe were a smidge more than that. Not that it's a competition. Uh, <laughs> J.D., how was Christmas Sunday at St. Luke's? Uh, Sunday was uh, low. I mean, we had, I think, about 80 people. Um, but overall, the three services, we had about 700 come through. So that was, um, we had, uh, I think, 350 or a little bit over on 430 and like two, I forget the exact numbers. And it's always, I don't ever trust them anyway, because I'm like, did you count the choir like, <laughs> you know, or, or not or double count? <laughs> right, right. At any rate, it seemed full. And I'm glad we had it on Sunday morning. And actually, we got a number of people saying that they came by just because their church was closed yeah. or they couldn't find one of those open. So I was like, well, we'll be open next Sunday, too. Yeah. <laughs> and every, every following <laughs> Sunday after that. Um, so, yeah, it was good. And Matt, your roads weren't too bad. Yeah, they said that there was the weather was horrible. They said it was going to be bad. They said there was going to be like it was going to shoot up to fifty degrees. Rain was going to pour from the sky, and then it was going to shoot down to to like five degrees wind chill at negative twenty. Yeah, which it did. It did all that. But and so and they're saying you know once you get below fifteen degrees, it is it's a question about whether or not. The ice belt the will actually work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the so sometimes and, and it was going to stay like that all through Christmas weekend. So if only I was, there was if only there was some way to avoid having to ever deal with that sort of I, terrible. This is my thing. I don't know. Tragedy. I don't know why. I don't understand what this you. Is, I don't understand why people ever lived up here. I mean, because we live up here with heat in our houses, right? And then people people settle this area. Well, not for long. Not without to, heat. You're going to start making some sacrifices for well, the rest true. of the world. Man. That's true. I don't know what bad. My point is, I don't see why anyone ever moved up here in the first place. <laughs> Our people here it's the opposite in the gospel right <laughs> it's the opposite of yuma arizona where i lived for a few years the idea that you would be an inmate in yuma territorial prison in like the 1850s it's a dry is, heat i can't believe you'd be like a dry heat inside a clay oven <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> but yeah you you heard the call from across the water and you you obeyed the spirits leading to go up there to the Preached to Nanook of and the North. We had the biggest uh, biggest Christmas day turnout we ever had. When when Sunday falls on a Christmas or when Sunday falls on Christmas, last year we got 75. This year we got like 80 something. So it's really it means it's bigger than we usually mm-hmm. get. So I was shocked that people made their way out and I was really happy about it. And, and Christmas Eve too is bigger than yeah. bigger than usual. So yeah. So this week we'd like to talk about an ongoing Episcopal election in the Episcopal Church. A few months ago, the Reverend Charlie Holt was elected Bishop of the Diocese of Florida. He was the conservative candidate, having expressed opposition to same-sex unions and more, the whole slate of things. Uh, So upon his election, there were, of course, immediate calls for the House of Bishops to refuse consent. There were also calls for the results of the election to be overturned due to electoral irregularities, things which to an outside observer just seemed people grasping at straws to do whatever was necessary to get rid of the conservative guy. But they were successful and the election had to be held again. It was held in November and Charlie Holt was again 
victorious, but the bishops still need to consent. And now, just last week, the Reverend Mr. Holt has put out a statement seeming to reverse his earlier stance supporting traditional marriage and sexuality, assuring the people of the diocese that allowance will be made for same-sex marriage in the diocese under his authority. He says that all sacraments should be available to all people, and the discernment to holy orders will not be discriminatory based on sex, sexual orientation, marital status, or other categories. So guys, what do you make of this? Is this a simple story of someone willing to do or say whatever it takes to be made a bishop, or is there more going on here? Uh, yes, it's it's the first. Yeah, I was like, there's not a lot much more going on here. The, uh, the saddest, that, yeah, I mean, I, I've I, ever and seen. I say that with sadness because I know Charlie Holt. Who, I don't know, I'm not, we're not good friends or anything, but I knew him. I've met him personally. We met him. We, um, he used to be in the Central Florida Diocese. I came out of that diocese. Yeah, when I was when the when the sexuality debate first broke open, there was a big meeting down in Plano. One of the first big meeting of of, of the conservative movement within the Episcopal Church after the after the consecration. And I met him there. We all went out to dinner with a bunch of people. And um, were you guys even born then? Were you, I was. Were, at, were you alive? I was at that plane okay. meeting. Uh, okay, okay, okay. But yeah, he um, he was a good he was a good guy. I mean, he's, he's very solid. I mean, I, I've had several interactions with him before, and he articulated queer, uh, very strong uh, Orthodox views. But but now uh, he has become a hireling, really. I mean, that's that's what that's what that's the way Jesus described the type of shepherd that he's become, because he's willing, he's willing to uh, lead people who are caught up in a sin that Paul says will end in their destruction. He's willing to lead them into it and to facilitate their going further and to help them have access to the sacraments, which which Paul also says. If you take those, if you come to, if you approach communion uh, with an unworthy, another really way, and and I, and I think we we talked about this before, but that's in a defiant, rebellious, unrepentant way, regardless of the sin, then your health is at stake. I mean, you could die, you could drop dead. So, so this this person who's who's trying the best that he can to become a bishop, his soul. Uh, has sold his integrity. I think he's made a Faustian bargain, and maybe, maybe he's compromised his soul. I think he probably has. Uh, I don't see how he can do this without 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 departing from the faith. And well, I think a, the, the, the irony the irony for me is I think if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe when we met him was pitching some sort of parish wide discipleship program, That's and right. he moved to St. John the Divine in Houston, mm-hmm. I want to say, and yeah. became like the director of family discipleship, all suffused biblically, all, you know, intended to bring people to a deeper level of conviction and courage and all of this sort of high sounding language, which of course is, is high sounding for a reason because it's, it's laudable and it's wonderful yeah, and it's great. And so I just thought, you know, when, when he was in the mix and elected initially knowing, I mean, again, not well, but, but those are the main aspects of him that I knew I said, well, goodness, the only question here is whether or not he'll get consent, because surely there's no way that he'll actually um, capitulate in any way that would be meaningful enough to make it through, um, you know, this this shibboleth that one has to do to become a bishop. And then out of a sudden, all of a sudden, you know, the headline came and I remember getting it and it was relatively recent. And it just said, you know, Florida bishop elect Charlie Holtz commits to allowing same-sex marriage gay ordinance if consecrated. And I, I thought I misread it. I thought he was, you know, I thought it was like continues to reject or does not commit or something. And, and then read the, read the whole article with, 
with, I mean, nothing short of just um, really just sadness, like a deep and abiding sense of um, loss that yet another has fallen, you know, and I remember as a young, younger man watching these, uh, these ministers who at the time, I've got a couple in my mind, I'll leave them, I won't say my name, but you know, that probably had, let's say like 60, 40 congregations, you know, uh, maybe, maybe even 70, 30, you know, quote unquote, traditionalist and progressive. And almost to a man, they um, either resigned or capitulated because they weren't willing to uh, withstand some sort of pushback. Most notably, again, I have one in my mind, but most notably, you know, went away for for like a, a month long discernment process of how he was going to navigate and shepherd his people through this incredibly complex question. And as soon as you start framing it that way, it's like, let's just cut that month to a day, buddy, because we know how you're going to end up on the end of this. And so at the end, he came back to great great, you know, prayerful solemnity and said, well, I'm no longer the man to lead you in this tumultuous time. Um, God bless you and just jump ship. Well, that that church is now empty and it's totally progressive. And it's just a long litany or long list of formerly protected sheep pens that have been overrun by the wolves. And so it really, again, I, I have, I hope it's communicating my voice. I know personal animus. Um, I don't know Charlie Holt well enough to have personal animus one way or the other, but from the office of bishop, you know, the office of overseer, watching once again, someone aspire to this position and the the um, lengths to which they have to go in order to supposedly take this responsibility, which actually is just abdicating responsibility. Like, we'll give it to you as long as you agree not to exercise it in any meaningful biblical way. That is, well, Faustian bargain is what you said, Matt, and I think you're exactly right. I think the you know the the push when the, when the, when the conservative Anglican movement began within the ACNA or within the Episcopal Church, there were two parties. There was the, the Remain and Fight Party, and then there was the Get Out and and Start a New Province Party. And at first, I was in the Stay and Fight Party, and I moved over into the to the Get Out Party. And the reason I moved over is because I saw I felt like it was untenable the, 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 the numbers were not there to maintain that and there were and there were enough levers that could be pulled by by the majority to make to make orthodoxy untenable in the in the church and one of the things that we thought would probably happen is what we saw i think it was the last general convention where they passed that or no maybe it was the one before that where they passed that maybe it was b012 which isn't said, that one of your email addresses? <laughs> uh, the uh... <laughs> where you where you uh, B zero one two is if if you're a bishop, you are required to facilitate same sex blessing, right, right, and, and and ordain those who are, or at least arrange the ordination of those who are who are in same sex relationships or are pro LGBTQ. So that means you cannot be an Orthodox bishop in the Episcopal Church anymore, and and those who and and that that effectively ended the communion partner bishops and the inside strategy has collapsed. Uh, there are those who stay; they're still fighting the inside strategy, but but if they're facilitating gay marriages, they're not. They're <laughs> that's a lie. They're telling they're probably deluding themselves, um, and they're certainly deluding those who follow them because the inside strategy is gone, and the Episcopal Church is completely eaten up and, and destroyed by this by this heresy. Well, I think we need to call it yeah. what it actually is, which is a little bit like I forgot we did a we did a. Um, oh, it's when we did the thing on the um, the new rector of Holy Trinity Brompton. Like, I don't think that there's actually a fight. I think it's just that no one has the guts to call it what it is, which is they don't really care. I mean, I think that's really the case. I think in these quote unquote communion partner diocese, I mean, I talked to some of these people and, you know, they have 
um, you know, there's there's situations where they'll have like a partnered homosexual man on vestries, all the same nonsense and all the same sort of spineless capitulation. And so you want to say, look, we could we all saw this in most of you 20 years ago. And I'm sorry it's taken you so long to see. But there's nothing like we should just call it. We should call it and say there's there's a disagreement about whether or not this is as serious as the Bible and the entire uh, Old and New Testament seem to take it in the tr- Christian tradition and, you know, the overwhelming majority of Orthodox um, churches, including the Roman Catholic Church, you know, down through the ages. Is it, is it that serious or isn't it? And, you you know, again, we can, we can, as James, you know, John says, like they no longer walk with us. I mean, we don't have to follow you along your path and throw things at you the whole time, but we can at least call it and say, this is not a um, really a conversation anymore. And you're not fooling anyone. And I think that's what, that's, what's been frustrating for me in this is that I was, I was genuinely surprised that Charlie Holt changed his mind. But in terms of like, the way that most of the people who are still involved in the Episcopal Church, even if they personally say that they are against it, are, are traditional in terms of the way that they interact with and, and respond to it. It does not seem to, to rise to the level of concern or um, objection that that we seem to be given in the scriptures. You know, and again, I mean, you could, and we don't have to talk about it now, but you know, you could just go down the list of all the other things that you could substitute for gay marriage. You know, all the other sins you could substitute and see what how people's heads would explode even in these companies. And yet in this cultural moment within which we find ourselves, um, you have had to make a deal one way or the other. And these people um, have, and I think it's just, you know, let's just do everyone a favor and call it what it is. And then we'd at least have a clearer picture for, um, you know, an observing world about what Machen again said to Christianity or something else, you know, or, or two versions of Christianity, or, you know, Paul says to the Galatians, you know, some other gospel, you know, there's a gospel that you're preaching that says your sexual desires define who you are um, over against the clear prohibitions of scripture. And there's a gospel that we're preaching that says that the life of repentance is daily and constant, including, and, and maybe even uh, specifically including concupiscence and those things which you cannot control. Those are two separate understandings of the good news. And uh, the sooner we can get that clarified, the sooner we can all go about building our, our churches and we'll see what, what how the Lord gives the increase. And we'll just watch. Katie, you said a few minutes ago about um, the people who went on these discernment weekends or weeks or months and um, came back and either capitulated or resigned. And I think we, we would want to say it and we want to ask you if you would agree with this, that while the truly courageous did seem to, when they felt they had to leave, they made every attempt to take their sheep to safety with them. There were, I think, some who were either forced out or resigned, not from cowardice, but out of necessity. Right. Well, I want to specify that it's churches that that were were majority Orthodox at the time. Okay. Like that's that's the now again. I mean, this is. I mean, we're not we're not scientists here. This is a little bit of a discussion. But nevertheless, you know, from the the, the presumption had been otherwise historically conservative parishes that happened to have a vocal minority. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about going into, you know, like uh, Newark where Bishop Spong had been, you know, reigning in terror for for two decades um, and then expecting, you know, a conservative out of Trinity to come in and turn that ship around. Like that's, you know, but I'm talking about the places where there seemed to at the very least be enough room to fight. Um, and we saw, we saw with very few exception, people who 
who had the temerity to to fight. I mean, I, I look about this in my own life. You know, we there were opportunities that we had when in the Episcopal Church when it became clear that I was not, and we've talked about this, Nick, not going to stay long-term, opportunities to jump out of St. Francis earlier than we did. And yet, because we hadn't able to secure depot, which at the time was at the very least like a, a protective measure against a revisionist uh, bishop coming in and, and only allowing a progressive rector to come in. So we had to stick around, you know, it didn't, it wasn't that obvious, but at the very least, it was no way of me leaving at the time until depot question was answered, because I knew once that question was answered, then whatever came next, at the very least, a, a communion partner bishop would have the oversight of the, the calling of the next rector, which would at the very least have kept those people who remained safe from just rank heresy. I mean, it was almost to the year when that happened, we got depot through, and then it turned out for for us, and we've talked about this before, that it wasn't animus on behalf of me towards St. Francis, but it had become in, untenable for me long-term in the Episcopal Church. And it became clear for St. Francis, at least, that that was going to be as far of a, a move as many of them were going to make. And I mean, you lived through this, Nick. Yeah. And so um, that was where it was the final thing I said to them when I left was, you know, we've gotten depot. Um, you're in good hands with respect to the interim and then ultimately the rector. And you seem to figure out, um, you know, exactly what sort of person you need in this position. But I felt that the Lord at least had delivered me from a sense of being um, being a coward. I mean, frankly, yeah. in, in because we fought. I mean, there was a lot of uncomfortable conversations about um, what is depot? Why are you a homophobe? Like, why are you so divisive? <laughs> like, things used to be so much better. So you, you know, these are all very yeah. unpleasant <laughs> conversations. And um, you're the reason my child isn't right. coming to this church. That's right. And I'm glad. You know, again, y'all are y'all are fruit of all of that time and energy, uh, Grace Anglican there, Nick, and we're all the better for it. I I mean, that's back to my original point. It's all the better for it. Like, call it whether or not you can abide in a church that seems to be of 17 minds on this one issue, which is important enough that it's addressed specifically in both the Old and New Testaments and throughout church history and is dividing communions across the denominations, or you don't care. <laughs> so like one of the two, and you can have two different churches, you know, within 20 miles of each other, and you probably won't spend a lot of overlapping time um, with the various congregations. And, you know, God bless, God bless this one and all, you know, this little, little tiny Tim. We should, we should know though. I mean, it, it, it was, it's untenable of course, to be Orthodox now in the, in the Episcopal church as a, as a bishop, but you know, the same kind of creeping compromise is working its way into the ACNA. I mean, I, I, I think we've all heard of a number of churches in the ACNA where their partnered homosexuals at least attending and taking communion and protecting the sacraments. And some, I even heard of one recently where a person's serving in the vestry. You know, and that, and we, and there are people who have articulated, there are ordained people in the ACNA who have articulated the idea that this is really just a, an Adi Afra kind of debate where we could disagree, we can agree to disagree about homosexuality. Sure, we can have our, our stance where we're not going to officially uh, recognize these relationships, but this is still something we don't have to divide over. And, and that's going to kill us if that continues, if that proceeds and eats its way through diocese after diocese in the ACNA, we're done. Uh, and it's connected with the wokeness. And we've said many, many times in the same, same kind of logical foundations that are necessary to say that a person is, is well, to identify a person on, a, on the gender spectrum or according to the orientation philosophy that goes hand in hand and is part and parcel of the woke worldview. And that is making 
huge headway in the ACNA. So we should beware ourselves. And then the, the sad thing is our bishops aren't really doing anything about it. Look at the number of initiatives we have at the provincial level. Like I'm, today, the Matthew twenty-five initiative, uh, put, they've been putting out reflections every morning in Advent and uh, now, now Christmas. And today is just like Shane Claiborne wearing a collar sort of thing. Exactly. I mean, today's reflection essentially said, you know, it it was today is the day of the holy innocence. And we're (laughs) we're talking about the murder of innocent babies by Herod. Right. Um, And so on that day, they put out they do. They mention abortion, which is great because that's what you should be talking about in our day and time. When 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 the holy innocence comes along, you should be talking about the murder of babies. But uh, that that wasn't their focus. Their focus is on a whole life initiative like we should be thinking about the mothers who ha- who are going through such difficult times and have to kill their babies. And the same kind of things you hear about the, from the Anne campaign, that, that yes, we should be against abortion, but if we're really pro-life, we're also going to support this whole raft of socialist liberal programs for immigration and for women and all these kinds of things that will keep, that will also be pro, quote unquote, pro-life. It was a really cynical reflection. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the ACNA... It should be anyone who reads that. I hope you'll write a letter to the archbishop and to the people who are in charge of the Matthew twenty-five initiative. Which, in fact, is it? I'm sorry. I'm. I'm I'll. I'll stop after this. But even the name of that initiative tells me that someone doesn't know how to do basic exegesis because Matthew twenty-five. I mean, that's about the. You know, maybe they took Charlie Holt's discipleship yeah, class. Yeah, the sheep and the goats. Uh, it's yeah. not about. It's. Um, it's not about Christians doing good things for the poor so they go to heaven, which is, seems to be what, <laughs> what Matthew 25 is about. It's about the way what sheep do is care for other sheep. Uh, well, that, it's a uh, it's a tired it's a <laughs> when I see these things, I see this this constant refrain, which has been which has been sad my entire life, which is that they're worried about the quote unquote young people. And you know, for almost well, I don't know, 18 years of my adult life, I was in the most progressive, quote unquote, church that has ever, the history of the world has ever seen, you know, the Episcopal church, I will second to the metropolitan church, I guess. <laughs> um, and it was empty and devoid. And, and the church was empty and devoid of any uh, young people. Increasingly so, year after year after year, I remained the youngest person in every, I'm talking about across the world, in Vienna, in the Diocese of Europe, in Berlin, in Kentucky, it didn't matter. It was like, where are the young people? Well, I know what we should do. We should baptize every single progressive ideology and movement of our um, of our current cultural moment, and somehow that'll get the young people. And again, I'm not saying that our province has done this, and I want to stop short of being too critical. That being said, the impulse seems to be similar, is that somehow we need to um, downplay the doctrine, we need to downplay the tradition, we need to somehow make it less formal, less rigid, um, and somehow more palpable for, uh, quote-unquote, young people. And I want to just say, like, we have, I mean, the verdict is in. I mean, look at the, um, I mean, I was, I've been reading this book, as you all know, uh, from Robert Cardinal Seurat about um, the day is now far spent, and it's just, it's, he's a Roman Catholic, but, you know, he talks about, like, World Youth Day among, like, traditionalist Catholics. You know, you've got millions of people around the world, you know, Brazil and Canada. And, and again, I mean, it's, I'm not, and we all have our problems. But one of them is not trying to make the church look more like the world. I mean, that, or, or, or excuse me, our main problem is that, not that the church somehow is too actual Christ, actually Christian. And so I, I get frustrated with these because not that I'm not appreciative of, like, the desire to, 
to bring along the next generation. I mean, goodness sakes. I mean, I've got five of them going to be in one of the next generations. You know, I mean, we've got people that we want to see catechized and grown and raised in the faith, but it seems um, like we, we're going to try to continue to do a slightly altered version of what had been done for the past century. And you, I want to say, you know, we might need more of a reset than, than just, changing some of the um, drapes or whatever in the house. Like we might need a whole remodel. You know, it's like what, um, it's like what John Schuler when he was on, you know, so he keeps talking, going on about, as the Brits would say, because saying, you know, if we keep doing the same thing generation after generation and the ACNA is just a slightly more orthodox version of the Episcopal Church, you know, it's like, well, we won't actually perform homosexual marriages, but we haven't done a thorough growing, thorough going like um, reboot and a resetting of some of these real culturally complacent um, realities, well, then, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to make it. I mean, I think, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, I, I resemble this remark. I mean, I have been in the process over the past decade of being refined and, and challenged and, and then found myself more often repenting than not of cavalier attitudes towards things, you know, complicity and sort of, you know, looking past certain um, things that I shouldn't have. And I, um, you know, I can't fix everything, but I know I, I can't continue going in some of the same directions, you know, like laxity about, pre-marital um, uh, uh, cohabitation, you know, um, lack of baptismal discipline in terms of, I mean, um, uh, preparation in terms of committed sponsors and parents, you know, um, I mean, these important things that we, when we were Episcopalians, were, it was like, if you even mentioned that, you would have thought you were a, um, some sort of fire-breathing fundamentalist, um, you know, uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards re returned to sinners in the hands of an angry God. And yet it turns out those are just basic Christian convictions for faithful ministers to feed and protect their sheep. And um, I'm grateful for you, Matt, not as a moment of personal privilege to have modeled this um, for decades before I was um, even old enough to really think for myself. I mean, you know, being much, much older, but, uh, but, but I was grateful and I'm, I was always envious in a certain sense of the freedom that you had to speak and teach and um, the, the courage you showed. And I'm grateful that you have helped galvanize uh, me for one and look forward to with gentleness and humility, but conviction and courage, watching the Lord continue to strengthen our hands because it is a worthy calling and a necessary one. And I think that we're, we, we watch these men in particular who aspire into these positions of authority and responsibility cower in the face of public opprobrium and shame is really is saddening. I mean, it's a it's a disheartening reality to consider. And I um I pray for a change of heart. You know, I pray for a for a wait. You know, actually upon like a cranberry and reconsideration upon further consideration, I I will not do any of these. And if you won't allow me to be a bishop, then so be it. What good is a mitre if you forfeit your soul? You know, I mean, that's what that's what I hope and pray. And maybe it's not too late. I read a tweet thread by that Hans Fine, the guy who created Lutheran satire, who's a really great follow on Twitter, yeah, if you're into is. that sort of thing. Um, and he was saying, I think the, the presenting issue for him was screens in church and projecting the service onto a screen. And he was saying, you know, you, you don't need to do the latest thing. If your worship looks like it looks 700 years ago, that's a good thing. Lean into it. And then he said, although pews were a good invention, <laughs> and air conditioning that's right and deodorant <laughs> and penicillin right. so so as we consider your words jd about sort of um returning you know ad fontes to the source what what should we be um conserving what should we be able to change obviously there are new 
worship songs, for instance, written for every generation. There is church architecture. How how is a church to know what the things are to which to hold on and what are the things that we can say this this is something that we can move forward with the old truths into a new time? Well, I think every and this again is not original thought to me. Um, it's an amalgamation of a couple of different podcasts and books I'm reading, but I think in every age you can see from, I mean, the old Testament down till today, whatever gods you could blaspheme are the ones that you have to stand up against as a Christian. Um, if you can get tried for heresy for saying the wrong thing or speaking the wrong thing about whatever the secular gods, for lack of a better word, or the pagan gods, well then as the church, we have to confront that with the message that Jesus is Lord, you know, so you had Caesar and the whole pantheon, you know, Paul going to Acts 17 and say that, you know, you, you're so spiritual, you have even a, to the unknown God, but I proclaim to you that which is unknown is known. And then he concludes his sermon with, he's coming back to judge, you know, he's the name that's been given to judge all the nations, you know, and that guy, Paul ultimately killed. And so we see down to the ages in every generation, in the in the non-Christian, pagan slash supposedly secular world, there's there's something about which you cannot speak, which is sacrosanct. And so, in our current milieu, it is this inviolable self. We talked about this. It's the idea that you're the autonomous, you're the the end arbiter. You know, like who is it? Um, um man is the measure of all things. I was um. Uh, Protagoras has said that? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, the point is that has come to fruition in a technological way that could never have been done before. And uh, we have the seeming possibility of self-creation, autopoiesis, in a way that, that the, the ancient Greeks and Romans could have only dreamed of, because we can actually alter our, you know, with, with CRISPR technology, we could theoretically alter our DNA. You know, I mean, you can begin to like create chimeras, you know, you can, they've already had people who are trying to, to augment their, like the, their bodies with transhumanism and things, you know, implanting cyborg parts and trying to, to interbreed various species. And all of this is a, you know, in the hands of a creature, in the hands of a, of a loving creator, God could be for the good, you know, science in and of itself is not, is not necessarily bad, but we have this well, demonic um, worship of self, which when combined with the technological prowess, which then combined with an absolute no limit uh, bioethic in the broader world, um, is is a recipe for for incredible disaster. And, you know, we see it, uh, well, we talked about uh, abortion earlier, you see it in that. I mean, as that gets either easier and easier, you know, plan B, the day after pill will just become some sort of over-the-counter, you know, eight-month pill that you could take that somehow, you know, painlessly and and without uh, remorse will remove this unwanted lump from your, you know, from your, your uterus and so on and so forth. We have this ease of life, which uh, brings into question the whole meaning of life, which is um, when devoid of God, actually causing the West in particular to just commit suicide. It's almost like the end of The Good Place. Remember the, the show The Good Place? If you saw the end, spoiler alert, they get to a place where they've had so many experiences and so much pleasure and so much life that they just decide for non-existence. Like that's the actual end of the entire movie is that they just say, well, we've had enough of this. And you see that sort of decadent self-destruction in many places of the West um, fueled by limitless access to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And we should be unsurprised that devoid of the intervention of the Holy Spirit, given the life of, and the eyes and life of faith, as Paul says in Ephesians, the illumination of the heart, well, then um, we see just people sliding slower, more and more slowly into, um, into sort of despair. And, and I think it's a, it's a, 
tragic thing. And again, I'm now I'm just echoing again, Cardinal Sarah watching from Nigeria, having grown up in Ghana, um, saying that, I mean, this is an amazing thing. He's saying that the, for the immigrants to the West and to Europe in particular, and again, this Nigerian saying this, he says the one thing that they could offer these people is the patrimony of Christian hope and civilization that was so in, um, crucial to the formation of the European world, because instead what they're offering them is simply uh, materialism and consumerism. And so no wonder when people finally get to like Brussels or these beautiful cities, um, instead of being inspired by the beauty and order and transcendent value that many of these buildings and these sort of cities represent, they're just offered like, here's, um, you know, cell phone full of porn, here's a bunch of weed, and here's a brothel. And so they become disillusioned very quickly and begin to um, despair of, of the whole project in and of itself. And again, I'm, read the book if you want to know, hear more about it, but it's very compelling because it seems to be descriptively accurate. Um, now, prescription, that's a little bit harder place. And that's where you say, well, I wasn't called to save the world. The world has been saved, but we were called to cultivate our responsible sheep pen, our garden, as it were. And so it's like made me double back in on not only my own family, obviously that's first priority, but then by extension, the family of God that we've been given the responsibility to shepherd and to, to feed. It's, it's sort of conversely, like, you know, you pull your eyes away from the, the gravity of the, of the forest fire and back to your one little plot that's not in inferno. And you say, well, Lord, help me protect this. And then hopefully, and by his mercies, we'll um, be given something of, 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 a, of a deepening growth, if not numeric growth in the midst of all of this. But it's a, it's a dire situation. And it doesn't help when you have, quote unquote, Christian churches just falling left and right to the, not even the stiffest winds of the age. Um, well, going back to the idea you were mentioning earlier about, you know, where, where the idols of the age her her predominant that's where the church needs to outspokenly be bold and i think that's why i why i know a lot of christians have a hard time with it but that's why social media is important having a free the ability to speak freely on social social media that's why podcasts like this are important that's why the pulpit is of primary importance because christian ministers and just christian people should be out there blaspheming the gods of this age in bold terms and that will get you canceled. That will get people upset. But that's what we have to do. We can't. We cannot. Uh, this is. I think um, James Woods is right. Uh, that this is. This is not a negative world according to Aaron, like Aaron Rain's negative world. We can't be winsome. We have to be bold. We have to say these gods are no gods at all, and they're going to lead you into the darkness and into the pit. And uh, the sexuality god that some people in the church are following the. Uh, the egalitarian god, the, the, the various gods are gods that are going to they're going to kill you, um, and so and so leave them and and repent and turn to Jesus, who is your only hope. Well, I'll go ahead and um, speak for Matt uh, on top of that by imploring you to follow and like um, his uh, Twitter yeah. handle, um, <laughs> which, of course, you know, I think we did notice, Matt. I mean, Merry Christmas to you that since we started this this uh, lowly podcast, your Twitter numbers have tripled, I think, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. whereas the rest of ours have slowly trickled upwards. But um, but you can only get so much traction from retweeting you, but we do our best. Um, but it is a great joy, I think, um, like we were saying before, you know, courage begets courage. And uh, in the body of Christ, people are strengthened and edified by brothers and sisters who are um, confessing, repenting, being absolved and lifted back up to the life of faith um, in the in good times and bad. And every generation, the church has been beset by 
difficulties, you know, every, every Christian generation, every generation for that matter, thinks it's its final one, you know, and yet here we are. And I'm grateful for, um, as we've said before, the ACNA, uh, the men and women who helped uh, found it and who recognized that enough was enough. You know, we have some work ahead of us, of course, to continue to turn back and to be refined and repent. And um, I'd like to think that if we're uh, being listened to charitably, particularly within the ACNA, that that's how we're being viewed as people who, uh, as part of a family, are deeply affectionate towards those, even in the midst of disagreement, all towards the end of growing, as Paul says in Colossians, more into the likeness of Christ. But, but fundamentally, you know, we were promised to complete the sufferings of Christ in our bodies, uh, this side of heaven as his church. And so we'll continue to walk with the wounds of his nail-pierced hands and feet, uh, which will be an offense to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, and yet will continue to be the power of salvation to all who call on him, even despite uh, the seeming ascendancy and victory of the of the gods of this age. And so I'm grateful for um, for you guys, just as an end of the year person, point of personal of privilege, and um, for the tens and tens of our listeners who follow along with us and send us encouragements every now and then, and pray that 2023 will be another year of wisdom and um, and strength. And as we pray, well, you used to pray, at least some of the good of the 79 prayer book, that we'll go and uh, strength and courage to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. So amen and amen. Thank you for closing out our year with some good words, J.D. And thank you, listener, for listening to Stand Firm this week and this year. If you'd like to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch, rate, interview the podcast on iTunes, send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, and join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week and next year. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh,